All right, the only announcement I know of is that this Saturday morning that we're going to have our men's prayer breakfast. And so that needs to, uh, email to that effect needs to go out. We'll have our men's prayer breakfast, and after that the deacons will meet. And so you guys who haven't been on Saturday morning are missing out not only on a great breakfast, but good, uh, good conversation as we talk about the Word of God. So uh, that's the main thing, the only thing I know of coming up. A week from Thursday, is it a week from Thursday or two weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks. I'll be gone on Thursday in two weeks. So, all right. More about that later. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be in right relationship with the Lord, uh, confessing sin in silent prayer if necessary. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, and confession does not mean uh, feeling sorry for your sins or having remorse, it just means simply telling God, admitting what we have done, the sins that we've committed, and then instantly He forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we are restored to that uh, place of walking by the Spirit and where we can uh, grow spiritually. So we have, we will have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's so great to be able to come together tonight and to focus upon you to study your word, to be reminded of these eternal principles that you have established for us and that we can come to understand them and apply them to our thinking and to our lives. Father, we're reminded again today, and anybody who just slightly perused the news, that things in this nation are in terrible condition because of bad leadership. It's not anything new in history. Uh, We're studying a time of horrible leadership in Israel, in the ancient world, and it all comes from the same thing, and that is a spiritual rebellion against you. So, Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We know that there are those who are right, those who are uh, correctly oriented to you in biblical truth, and that they seek to apply these things in national leadership. So, Father, we pray that you would... Um, just strengthen them in their resolve. So many times I hear from congressmen that they just they they just covet prayer because it is very very difficult in their position. So we pray for them. We pray that you'd strengthen them. We pray that you would restrain the evil that seems to be so uh, so freely um, freely active in our world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time, as we were getting into Judges 17 and 18 by way of introduction, I started off by talking about this um, 2023 
uh, American Worldview Inventory, which was uh, established by uh, Arizona Christian University and their Cultural Research Center, which is headed up by a man by the name of George Barna. George Barna is a highly respected pollster. He is a Christian, and he has done a remarkable amount of work. And I believe the first time I became aware of him, and I think he had his beginnings uh, about 35 years ago or so in the the mid-90s. So I want to talk a little bit more about this worldview inventory and what we're going to be talking about tonight in Judges 17 and 18 has to do with the evil of religion as opposed to biblical worship of God. And um, and that fits right in with what we see here because even though America was founded on strong biblical Christian principles, that over the years that has degraded uh, to an enormous degree. And we saw last time, as I had gotten an email on that Tuesday morning, uh, that they went through some findings where they saw that uh, among uh, American adults, the, uh, uh, the percentage of those who hold to a biblical worldview had dropped from 6% to 4%. So a lot of people wonder what a worldview is. A worldview, everybody has one. Here is a quote from George Barna. Everyone has a worldview. Typically, it's fully developed and operational before they reach their teen years. Parents, of course, play a hugely significant role in shaping it. And therein lies the issue, at least for those hoping for a resurgence in the number of Americans whose worldview is biblical. Now, I've spent a lot of time in the past talking about a worldview. A worldview has to do with how people look at life and understand and interpret the things around them. There are a number of competing worldviews in our culture. We have a a Judeo-Christian worldview, which is that which is most consistent with what comes out of the Bible. You also have a naturalistic worldview, which is the worldview of those scientists. And I use the word those scientists because a vast number of scientists don't get any publicity, but they are consistent Christians, and they do not believe in a naturalistic worldview, which starts with the eternality of matter and that everything has come into existence just by random chance over billions of years. And uh, Darwin's theory of evolution never would have gained any ground if they had known 180 years ago what they know now. Because he thought that the the smallest form of, of life was a cell, Now we know that a cell is comprised of hundreds of millions, if not billions, of bits of information. Where did that information come from? Who coded a cell? And so so for two cells to come together, you have to have not only the two cells, you have to have uh, the billions of bits of information in one cell and the billions of bits of information in the other cell somehow come together by chance. And when you have billions of bits of information, if one is off, then the whole concept 
collapses. And it's just beyond the realm of any kind of mathematical probability that random chance is going to produce any kind of of information. It's like thinking that you can t- take all the bits and pieces, parts of a computer apart, and put them in a box and keep shaking the box until it all comes together, turns itself on, and starts making calculations. Uh, you can shake that box for a billion times a billion years, and it's never going to come together and produce order. So everybody has to believe in an ultimate reality of some sort. Uh, Either it's pure matter, or sometimes they think of it as pure energy. You have different worldviews that relate to uh, pantheism, that God is in everything. That's essential in far Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. You have, as I mentioned, naturalism, which it just, everything just, there's no supernatural power, there's no God, nothing like that. You have worldviews like, such as existentialism, uh, worldviews related to uh, nihilism. Uh, there's an excellent book by James Sire called The Universe Next Door, which I've mentioned before. It goes through a new edition about every uh, decade or so because of the way things change, but it's subtitled A Worldview Catalog, and that is an excellent introduction to worldviews. But basically, what we see is that a biblical worldview was that which was the foundation for our founding documents because uh, of, of the stated and cited uh, references in the writings, the diaries, the letters, the speeches uh, of the men who wrote the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, other founding documents, uh, 33% of those citations came from the Bible. The number two source is John Locke. And John Locke, uh, probably about half of his, the things he's quoted as saying are allusion, he's, when he said them, they were alluding to things that he got from the Bible. So the Bible is the primary influence on our founding documents, and the founding fathers, whether they were actual believers in Jesus Christ as their Savior or not, um, they had a biblical worldview because that was the worldview of the culture, just like most Christians today are postmodern because they grew up in a postmodern culture. And uh, and it takes a lot of spiritual growth to start getting rid of that. But anyway, that just gives you a little bit of a framework for understanding what a worldview is. So uh, for a biblical worldview... Uh, Barna identifies seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. And the first is an orthodox biblical understanding of God. Who is God? Uh, According to the Bible, God exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God has one essence, so he is one in essence, but he is three in person. And we're never going to comprehend that. People say, well, why do you worship a God you can't understand? Well, it seems to me that the definition of a God is someone who's probably beyond our comprehension. And if a God is not beyond human comprehension, then maybe it's not a God. Uh, you have to think this through just a little bit. Um, that a, the biblical God is omniscient, 
omnipotent and omnipresent. He knows all things, all the possible, all the things that could have, would have, should have happened, but didn't, and all the things that have happened. He Nothing escapes his knowledge. His knowledge is complete and exhausted, exhaustible. It is, he knows everything, in other words, and he doesn't learn anything because he knows everything. So that's a, that's a biblical God. He is beyond our comprehension. We can know true things about God, but we cannot know God exhaustively. He is beyond our comprehension. So that's an orthodox biblical understanding of God. He is both transcendent, which means he is above and beyond our thoughts, but he is imminent. He is present to his creation and to his people. Second, all human beings are sinful by nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born with a constitutional defect as a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. So every choice that we make has moral considerations and consequences. And as we'll see in a verse that uh, we'll be looking at later on in uh, Jeremiah 17:9, the heart, referring to the immaterial part of man, is deceitful and wicked above all things, who can know it? So as we are apart from God, we are inclined to, uh, to sin. Third, knowing Jesus Christ, and that I would rephrase that, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins is the only means to salvation. The Bible doesn't use the phrase knowing Jesus in any other way except for those who are already Christians and are growing in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. So I would phrase that, believing that Jesus Christ is the only means to salvation uh, and that by realizing we're sinners, I'd rephrase this whole thing, by realizing we're sinners is the only way that we recognize that we need a solution to the sin problem and to trust in him. And when we do, we are positionally forgiven, legally forgiven by God's justice of all sin. Fourth, the entire Bible is true, reliable, and relevant. I remember when I was in seminary and I would hear somebody say, well, we need to make that more relevant. And I would comment, and my sidekick, Tommy Ice, would also make these same comments. The Bible is always relevant. It is sinners who have departed. That makes the people who are listening irrelevant to God. And we have to start with God and not with human experience. The entire Bible is true, reliable, and relevant, making it the best moral and spiritual guide for every person in all situations. That last part is really referring to what I talk about a lot, which is that the Bible is sufficient. It's, it's, it's written so that we can learn from it to, and that God will enable us to uh, handle any and every situation we face in life. And it's not just morality. Unbelievers can be moral, but it goes beyond morality to spirituality. Fifth, 
uh, absolute moral truth exists, and those truths are defined by God, described in the Bible, and are unchanging across time and cultures. And that point relates to what we've been studying in the book of Judges, because what happened in uh, the experience of ancient Israel was they rejected God, they abandoned him in the words of Judges, they abandoned him and they worshipped idols, they worshipped false gods, and false gods are not always physical idols of wood, metal, and stone, but they can be uh, idols of the mind. Most people have idolized their own being, so they worship themselves, they're self-absorbed. Um, so it's only when we return to God. And remember, the theme of Judges that we've been studying is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And um, so that's the problem. They rejected absolute truth. And in our culture, which is a postmodern culture, it claims that there are no absolutes, which in and of itself is an absolute. So it's grounded on a logical inconsistency. It's, log it's founded on a logical contradiction that um, the claim, when you claim there are no absolutes, the question is, well, is that an absolute? If it's an absolute, then there's at least one absolute, so maybe there are other absolutes. Seventh, the ultimate purpose of human life is to know, love, and serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The New Testament puts that we are to glorify God in all things, and it doesn't matter what part of your life we're talking about, whether it's health, whether it's athletics, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it is being an adult child of parents who need help, uh, we are to glorify God in all things that we do, how we do our work and what kind of work we do. We are to do all things to glorify God. And the last one is success on earth is best understood as consistent obedience to God in thoughts, words, and actions. So this is where we glorify God. So that basically... Def defines what a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview uh, consists. So, what have we found in these uh, various uh, studies that they have done, the, their American worldview inventory? First of all, only 50% of American adults embrace the true nature of God. So their starting point only 50% of Americans have a true understanding of God. Now, my question is, do they understand the implications of that true understanding of God? And therein lies a problem, because a lot of people just don't. They don't understand the implications of the Trinity. They don't understand uh, what that relates to in terms of understanding both the unity and the diversity of the Trinity or the authority relationships within the Trinity and how that relates to our understanding of things like humility and obedience and uh, obedience to authority. So the true nature of God, only half of them. Only 35% believe Jesus is the only way for salvation. 
So that's a direct contradiction of Scripture. Now, the problem that a lot of unbelievers have is that they don't like this exclusivity that biblical uh, Christianity has or biblical Judaism in the Old Testament. And I covered that last time. We'll hit it again a little bit in review tonight. But God said, I'm the creator. You're the creature. I will tell you how to worship me. You don't decide that on your own. I will tell you where to worship me, why you worship me, how you worship me, and what you should not do and think that it is worship. So he defines worship. But we live in a world today where man is the center of all things, and people think that they define worship. And the criteria that a lot of, way too many Christians have, is that my metric for worshiping God is how it makes me feel. The metric for how you worship God is how it conforms to God's character and what is revealed in Scripture. We may not feel very good. I woke up this morning, and uh, I, I felt great. I went out and walked four miles and sneezed about every minute of the four miles. I felt lousy when I got home and thought, if this doesn't improve, I'm not going to be able to teach tonight. But I was in the house all day. It wasn't until I came up here, got out in the air, that my nose started running and eyes watering and all the other garbage we're all dealing with because the oak pollen is about five times higher than normal. So we can come together and worship God even though we feel bad. And we don't, maybe we just don't enter into it like we would if we felt better, but it's not defined by that. It's defined by how we conform to what Scripture says. Third thing they found is that 27% of Americans recognize humans as sinful. Now, we're going to touch on that tonight as well. I mean, that's part of religion as opposed to Christianity. Religion says, well, sin isn't a problem because we're not sinners. It's how they define sin. And Scripture says that basically sin is anything that violates the perfect righteousness of God. It may be morally good, but it may be sinful. It may be legal, but it may be sinful. And we have to understand those things. When you don't think that people are sinful and you think that people are basically good, then the corollary of that is people are perfectible. They just have a few little faults. But they're perfectible. And therefore, humans on their own can bring in a perfect society, a perfect society where there is equity, where there is social equality, and where there are never any problems or difficulties. And that's living in a fantasy world that doesn't exist because people are basically sinners. And that means that they are flawed from the get-go. They are born sinners with a corrupt nature inherited from Adam. So because we're sinners, we cannot be perfected. We may be improved, but we can't be perfected. 
And this is a problem that has entered into human history and has caused serious problems. And you had numerous philosophers, especially in the 19th century, who all rejected the sinfulness of man, hated biblical Christianity, and put forth their various philosophies that man could indeed improve himself and progress to perfection. That's the ultimate meaning of this term that we hear related to politics, that progressivistic ideas. That's what the progress is. We can progress in every day, in every way, we get better and better. No, we don't. What happens is that we are flawed. We can improve. Some days we do better than others, but only if God the Holy Spirit is improving us does it have any lasting quality. 46 accept the, 46% accept the Bible as true and reliable. That is, that's good. What does that not say? See, a lot of things that you have to think through in, in terms of, of um, critical thinking is not just what does it say, what does it not say? You know, uh, the question is, do they accept the Bible as inerrant and absolutely infallible in everything that it says? and the absolute authority for everything in our life. I bet the number would drop considerably from there. A slim 25% believe in absolute truth rooted in the Bible. That's pretty slim. That's a pretty small number. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to apply it. That just means they believe it. We all know in our own personal lives that we believe the Bible says, I should not ever do X, Y, or Z, and we daily do X, Y, and Z and get frustrated over it. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. I don't do what I know I should do, and I do what I don't want to do. That's the, when the conflict in the Christian life doesn't mean we're not saved. It means that we're probably is an indication that we are saved, that we struggle with those things. 36%, only 36% see their purpose as serving God. Personally, I think that's high. That surprises me. So he says, um, and then only 23% define success as obedience to God. So I could quibble with that. I think our success is being faithful to God. That's related to being obedient to God. But I think that Scripture makes it very clear. Paul says what's required of us as stewards is that we be found faithful. I can't control how other people respond to it. I can only respond that I only make sure that I do the right thing and I'm faithful in carrying out God's responsibility for me. But how that works out, I can't control. So, what have we seen in our study? We saw last time, in terms of our review that of, of Judges and just what we've learned from the Old Testament period, from Genesis up through uh, Joshua, is that, in especially in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 14 specifically, we learn that man cannot generate his own principles of worship. 
God defines those terms of worship for Israel in the law that he gave to Moses for their governing not only their civil society, but also their worship of God. God defines the terms because he's the creator, and he sets the rules, and he has the right to set the rules because he's the creator. And that's spelled out in Deuteronomy chapters, uh, I mean chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. In the Mosaic law for Israel, he set forth what is referred to as the law of the central sanctuary, that God determined where he would place his sanctuary where people could come to worship him, and he chose the location as on Mount Moriah, which was on the Temple Mount in uh, in Jerusalem. It was the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, and David bought it from him, and it was there that Solomon built the temple. Prior to that, there was the tabernacle, which was God's mobile home, as it were, and uh, that was located for over 350 years in Shiloh. And uh, we're going to be going to Shiloh, I hope, uh, when we on the Israel trip. There's certain things that I have scheduled, but there's been there's there's unrest in the territories, as they say. And uh, right now Ramadan is going on, so it's probably due to that. And things will change when Ramadan's over, but but we just don't know till we get there. But uh, this work with uh, Associates of Biblical Research, and last week at our conference, uh, Henry Smith is the is uh, the administrative director of of that dig at Shiloh. They've been digging there for six years, I think, and have done a lot. And we're going to get um, probably get uh, Scott Stribling, who is the director of the dig on site, to give us a tour, complete tour of that of that site where the tabernacle was located. So you might want to go back. If you're going to go on the trip, you might want to go back and review our studies on the tabernacle. Third thing we saw was that the creature cannot determine how to worship the Creator. A good analogy would be that, uh, I know this may not work for some of you, that the pet does not rule the master. I know that doesn't work for some of you. Uh, but that's you know that's right. And then fourth, God always has only one way. This is what really irritates unbelievers. He's only had one way. Think about this. There was only one way to escape the worldwide flood. What was that? You had to get onto the Ark of Noah. And how many ways were there to get onto the Ark of Noah? There was one door. That was it. Then when you come to the tabernacle, and God lays out the tabernacle, and then there there is the outer wall around the tabernacle, cloth wall, but there's only one way into God. And God said there's only one way that the priests can come in and worship me. They have to come in a certain way. There has to be a burnt offering. There has to be the washing of the hands or washing of the feet. And they have to go through these rituals ahead of time or there's going to be a problem. There's only one way in the temple. And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Now, modern man just thinks that is, that's atrocious. But I, I've always loved C.S. Lewis's breakdown of this. He says, either he's telling the truth or he's lying. <laughs> 
And all these different statements Jesus makes, I am the resurrection to life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So Jesus claims to be the only way. He claims to be the only truth. He claims to be the source of life. And if he's telling the truth, then nothing else matters but coming to understand more about who Jesus is and what he did. If he's lying, then he's the greatest, most evil deceiver of all history because there are billions of people who are trusting in him alone for their eternal salvation. And if he lied, well, they're just all lost. So we have to answer these things. The third option is that Jesus was just uh, just a psychotic, had a psychotic break and thought he was God. And that doesn't fit any evidence that we know. That That's just something somebody would have to make up out of thin air. So God only has one way, and it's his way, and we need to know how to define that. So when we studied in the book of Judges, we saw that at the, the conquest generation with Joshua went in and they conquered the land. And that when that generation died off, the next generation that came up in verse 11 said, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible believes that there is absolute evil. And what the Bible says and defines as evil isn't a mass murderer, isn't a racist, it isn't somebody who is a chauvinistic, misogynistic, uh, uh, racist, homophobe. An evil person is a person who worships something other than God in place of God. And there are these statements all the way through Scripture. Then the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Notice, the book is all about people who are doing whatever's right in their own eyes. But what's right is what's right in the eyes of God. And so they did evil and enslaved themselves to the Baals, the false gods, the idols. And so that tells us right away that what evil is, is abandoning God. That's the starting point of evil. It is turning away from God and abandoning God. So... um, and that's what was stated in verse 12. They abandoned the Lord their God. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. Deuteronomy 12.1, I talked about this earlier. This is what God said. He said, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations uh, which you shall dis- dispossess shall serve their gods. You'll destroy their altars or sacred pillars. You just wipe out everybody else, everybody else's religion. You, you annihilate it, remove it from the land. But you'll seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. Not where you choose, but where God chooses. And there you'll bring your burnt offering, sacrifices, tithes, etc. And then in verse 8 it says, Every man, the, uh, Moses says to them, You shall not all do as we're doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. So that's the direct contrast with what's going on in, um, uh, at the time of the Judges. And uh, again, Deuteronomy 12:11 goes on to say there'll be one place to worship God, and that's where you'll bring your, your offerings. So we see in our outline of the book that in the introduction, it sets up the cycles, how Israel went from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. They go into the land, and God is really bringing them into this land because the Canaanites have been so perverse 
I mean, infant sacrifice where they are taking their young children and babies and burning them alive in the arms of the idols. And so Israel just adopts all that. So they become worse than the Canaanites. It's an incomplete obedience, and they are compromising with the religion of the Canaanites. Then we see this in the leadership. They become paganized. They take on every... uh, Gradually, it gets worse from the first Othniel to the last one, Samson. And now we're down here at the end where this is really the, the climax of the book showing that the priests have become completely relativized and paganized and they're idolaters and they're supposed to be teaching the people about God and then the people have become that. So you have these two sections at the end, uh, chapters uh, 17 and 18 deal with the paganization of the priests and chapter 19 and 21 tells us about what happens uh, to the people. So if we compare these chapters at the end, there's certain similarities. When we teach, when I teach about Bible study methods, how do you study the Bible? One of the things that you should do is to read it over many times. I usually suggest five or six times. I used an illustration not long ago on Sunday morning of a pastor and Bible teacher and president of Moody Bible Institute and later uh, Biola in L.A., somebody said, Pastor, you're always telling me that we should read our Bible. I just don't have time. Uh, it, it just seems it just seems so boring and dry. And, and, um, and Tori said, well, you're not reading it enough. Um, you need to read it 12 times. I said, I don't have that kind of time in the day. He says, okay, let's take a short book like Peter, 2 Peter, three chapters. And so the guy and his wife read it three times every morning at breakfast and at noon and at dinner. And he said within a couple of weeks, uh, he, he, he cried so much that his tears, he, he'd marked up the pages so much that the tears made the ink run. And all he could do was talk about what he was learning in Second Peter and he tells his wife, I, I can't read it anymore because all the words are blurred and turned black. And she said, your life is now white. You have changed so much. You have to really get into the word. So when you observe it, there's some certain things that we see. Is both of these episodes in chapter 17 and 18 and in 19 and 20 through 21 focus on events that take place in the center part of Israel. I'll show you a map in a minute, in the hill country of Samaria. And it's in the territories of Dan and Benjamin and Ephraim. That's interesting. Both episodes are that way. Why is that? Second, the events take place in this area that's primarily between Judah in the south and Ephraim in the north. And as you go through the history of Israel... Ephraim even becomes a synonym for the northern tribes, and Judah becomes equated with the southern tribes. Originally, there's three in the south. There's Simeon, Judah, and um, Benjamin, but they sort of merge all because Judah is so big. And this, um, uh, so this sort of foreshadows the future history of Israel. In both accounts, the Levitical priests, um, unnamed Levitical priests play a crucial role. 
And in both sections, the Levites are, these unnamed Levites are connected to Bethlehem. In chapter 17 to 18, the Levite is leaving Bethlehem and he goes north. And in chapters 19 to 21, the second Levite travels to Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is being brought forward. If you look at the scope of what's happening in scripture, Bethlehem gradually becomes mentioned more and more. And that's because this will become this, it's the birthplace of King David. King David is the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God makes a covenant with David that it will be one of his descendants that will come forth to save mankind. And so that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And in um, um, Micah 5.2, which is written some 600 years before the birth of Jesus, Micah prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Okay, 600 years, he just took a stab at it. And it was just by chance he got it right out of all the little villages and towns and suburbs in Israel. He got the right one. Um, but that is, of course, I'm being facetious. Uh, so that comes to the foreground. A fifth thing that we see is both of these Levites have connections to the hill country in Ephraim. The first Levite traveled there to the home of Micah, and the second one comes from Ephraim. Six, the priests inquire of God about their plan of action. So they, they one is false, one is seeking truth. Uh, both refer to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was located at that time. And then eighth, in the first account, the Danites have a military force of 600 men. And in a later account, uh, the Benjamites have 600 men. What's that all about? And then both accounts emphasize that there was no king in the land. That's mentioned four times at the end here in 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and 21.25. And then last, both accounts emphasize that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Judges 17.6 and 21.25. So the question you need to ask after you make these observations is, why is that important? You may sit there and go, well, so What? Well, the writer's making a point when you have any kind of repetition about something, you have certain patterns, the writer's put, bringing out those patterns for a reason. And so you have to think about that. And that's one of the great things about studying the Bible is that God didn't just give us a how-to book on how to live. Uh, you know, do these five things and you'll have a great marriage. Do these ten things and, and you'll be a great parent. Or do these twelve things and you're going to be successful and have a lot of money. If you listen to some pastors in some pulpits, that, that's the idea you get. But they made their points up because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible puts it within, you know, close these eternal truths with the stories and the instructions that are in the text that forces us to really go back and read it again and again and again and again so that we can learn it. And, and not just have somebody reduce it to three points and a poem because that makes us mentally lazy. And when we're mentally lazy, we become spiritually lazy. So we have to ask that question. And, and as far as I'm looking at this, what the author is telling us is important. 
What he's not telling us is not so important. What he's telling us is there's a problem. And this problem is where? All these problems are in the heart of Israel. They're in the hill country of Israel. They're in the center of Israel. You know, there's a there's a problem there, and that, that's that's what he's identifying, and he it's it's showing that this problem affects the religious structure as well as the social structure in the nation. Well, what caused that? That's what he shows. What causes this is the abandonment of God and the turning to idols. And this is true for any nation, any culture, any tribe in the whole world, that when they turn away from the creator, redeemer, God of the Scripture and the authority of Scripture, it breaks down into chaos. So we've seen this uh, last time that these events that we're going to look at occur at the same time as the events with the different deliverers in chapter 3 through chapter 16. But they're describing how the religious apostasy began, and it uh, always precedes, religious apostasy always precedes cultural collapse, as well as rampant immorality and violence. It causes what you always see in paganism is the destruction of of the identity of men and women as God intended it. And we're seeing that today with all of this uh, gender confusion stuff. It, it, on the one hand, we've it's interesting how how this developed from the early 1800s until it really flowers in the 60s and I'm no pun intended with the flower children of the 60s, uh, what, what you see is that this, this rejection, I'll point, say more about this in a little bit, this rejection of what I will call biblical patriarchy. You hear a lot of people say, oh, we don't like that, that's patriarchal. Well, there's two kinds of patriarchy. Don't, be, don't oversimplify it. A biblical patriarchy, man cre- God created man to be the head of the home. But it's, his leadership is to be practiced in a certain way. Because of sin, it is practiced in the wrong way. We've all heard the saying, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Well, that's exactly what you get in abusive patriarchy where the man becomes a tyrant in the home and over, overlords it over his wife. That's wrong. But what the left does and the feminists have done is they've said, no, 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 you have to understand that all patriarchy is bad. And when the Bible points out things like Samson, it's saying that patriarchy is bad. No, it doesn't. The Bible would be contradicting itself. It is saying Patriarchy without the Word of God, the love of God, understanding the right way in which uh, men and women are to work together, live together, be harmonious in a family, and how a family team and a marital team is supposed to work is not like that. That's the result of sin. There's another way. But what you have is a logical fallacy called the excluded middle. 
You either, in their words, you either have a matriarchy or you have evil patriarchy, and there's no third option of biblical patriarchy, which is not the same as evil patriarchy. But that's because they've rejected God. I mean, you go back and you read the, the early feminists in the late 1700s. Yes, they go back that far in early 1800s. They're as wicked and evil as you can imagine. They want to overthrow all marriage, all order, everything. They don't, they, they don't get a lot of publicity, but that's what they did. So we have to understand that when you get into paganism, it always brings about this kind of apostasy from biblical truth, and it leads to violence, and it destroys the relationships of men and women. So uh, that's what's happened in the last 50 years. So Judges 17.6 tells us the key theme. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so now we're going to see that applies to priests. So we get this first episode here in Judges 17.1. Now, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now, the first five verses are sort of an introduction to the introduction. Chapter 17 is the introduction to chapter 18 and where all of this is going to go. So it's, that's why Genesis, I mean, Judges 17.6 comes after the first five verses. It's going to lay the basic foundation of what happens in terms of idolatry, and then there's a reminder to the reader that in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. It's not setting this episode with uh, with Micah as something that's positive. It's stating this is something that's negative, even though it looks positive. Okay? And that's what we're going to see. So it's in the hill country of, of um, Ephraim. Now, when we had the pastor's conference last week, and a lot of you were here, a lot of you watched it, one of the themes was that biblical chronology is important because if the chronology is wrong, then you're going to have a lot of confusion and maybe the Bible's not right. There's errors. The other side to, to chronology being the backbone of all the information in the Bible is, is that is geography is important. You can read any other religious book in the world and the locations that are there don't actually exist in the real world. But you go to the Bible, and you can go to those locations. You can, you can walk around there. You can find them. Most of them have been found. Not all of them, but most of them have been found. But you read the Book of Mormon, you're not going to find any of them. You read something like the Book of Science and Health by Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, and you're, you're, it doesn't matter because it's not based on real world, so there's no geographical anything there. So this is this is the map of, of the promised land, ancient Israel. And we have all the different colors here represent the different tribes. So this is pretty broad out. You see this light green down here is Judah. A little darker green here was the tribe of Simeon, which was just sort of absorbed into Judah. One reason Judah has so much land is its parched desert. Okay, so they get a lot of land because most of it is not, not arable. So we're going to go to the next slide and just focus on the northern part. So here you see 
this part, the Judah and Simeon, and this little yellow here is Benjamin. That's the, going to be the, end up being the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern part is all these other tribes up to the north, the ten of them. So we'll blow it up here, and we see this is the allotment for the tribe of Dan. This is a large section here for Ephraim. And then the yellow over here is, is Benjamin. The little circle down here at the bottom tells us this is this upper black dot is Jerusalem, and the lower black dot is Bethlehem. Bethlehem plays a role in the the episodes here, so we just have to orient ourselves to reality. And then what's going to happen is a tribe of Dan that compromised, failed to trust God, therefore they were not victorious against the Canaanites down on the coastal plain known as the Shephelah. They left, wandered through Ephraim, found this religious site that was a counterfeit religious site, and they managed to um, convince the, the counterfeit priest there his identity will surprise you. That's the, that's the little twist at the end of the story. And they get him to take his idols and his paraphernalia and go with them. And they go up here and they annihilate. They go to Laish, which is just a town composed of uh, people who are mostly from over here in, in Phoenicia. And, uh, and they just annihilate them. They massacre them. And they take it over, and they, it shows how uh, they have no values. They're, they're just as bad as the Canaanites. They just go in. They have no value for life. They just go in it there and destroy it and steal this territory, which is in the tribal allotment of Naphtali. It's not theirs. So they're thieves. They're robbers. They're brutal murderers. And they set up a fake religion that continues all through the time period of the Old Testament, from this time all the way to the uh, destruction in 580, uh, 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the area that we're talking about. We don't know exactly where this Micah lived, but it was somewhere in this area. So down here's Judah. It's right, all of this is right on the border between Judah and Ephraim, and that foreshadows what's going to happen in a lot of the Old Testament. So this gives you another map. This is the, the normal size of the map. But it shows you again that Dan becomes in the far north. It's the northernmost part. And in this map, you go all the way down here, and this little dot here is Beersheba. And so when you're talking about the United States, you might say everywhere from Los Angeles to New York. And you're talking about the whole country. In Israel, you say everything from uh, Dan to Beersheba. And you just mean the whole country. So when we go to Israel this time, I'm pretty sure we're going to go to, from Dan to Beersheba. We're going to cover the whole thing. So there's a man of the hill country. Now you know where that's located. This is the hill country, the purple, which is um, over here. Yeah, that, the purple, that's Ephraim. And so his name's Micah. Now, Micah, it's an interesting name. The, the Hebrew name is actually the full name, which is used here in verse 1 and 4, is Mikayahu. Okay? Yah is always the, a, a suffix related to God. The fact that it shows up 
without the full name is just shortened to Micah, says something about the not too concerned about Yahweh. And what it basically means is that what the name means is who is like Yahweh, expecting the answer that no one's like Yahweh. He is unique. And over and over again, you find statements in Scripture where God says, I am Yahweh, there's none like me. God is a one of a kind. There is no one uh, like him. And so he has this name, Mikiyahu. We think, oh, well, that's a solid name honoring God. So maybe this is, um, this is a, a, a good thing. But let's just look at the last verse in chapter 13. At the end, we see this statement by Micah saying, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. Why? Because of his grace? Because I trusted him? No, the Lord's going to be good to him because I have a Levite as a priest. I've got my lucky good, good luck charm. Okay, this is what religion does. It 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 t- takes talismans and different kinds of omens and different things, and and there's no relationship with God. It's all juju black magic, and and that's exactly what it is. Whether you're talking about uh, various uh, legalistic forms of Christianity that. Uh, involve the smells and the bells and all these other things as if that chases demons away. And, um, and all this ritual, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity focuses on a relationship with God, uh, not on man doing certain works or rituals, and then God blesses them. And then when we get to the end of chapter 18... We read, so they set up for themselves, this is talking about the tribe of Dan that has taken up and wiped out the settlers in Laish. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, his idol, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. What's the house of God? The house of God was a tabernacle. It was located in Shiloh. Shiloh is located right here, okay? Shiloh, there's a highway now. You leave Jerusalem and you go up and you go by Gibeon and Mizpah. Actually, it, it goes to the right of Bethel. And it's really neat there when, when we're there on a trip and we go up that way, we'll, we stop. I'm going to try to go over to this church that's there this time. But when you stop there, there's a passage in Genesis 12:7. Uh, that Abraham has been up in Shechem, which is right up here, and he and Abraham, uh, he and Abraham and his wife Sarah go south, and they get down to where they are between Bethel and Ai. Ai is just over here, about where the about there, just above where the T is. They camp right in between. That's where the highway runs. I mean, you just get goosebumps. This is where Abraham and Sarah camped here you know, 4,000 years ago, but they camped here. And then Jacob came about 3,900 years uh, ago, and he camped at the same spot and built an altar, and he slept, and God gave him a vision and renewed the the, the Abrahamic covenant with him. It all happened right there. Just It's just phenomenal. So anyway, this is where the tabernacle was. And so what this verse is saying is that they set up an alternate worship center, 
Now, what did Deuteronomy say? That you're only going to worship where I tell you. I will pick the place, and I will tell you how to worship. But what did they do? They said, nah, we don't like the place you picked. We're going to go up, and we're going to annihilate, massacre the people that live there, and then we're going to set up an alternate religion. And later on, when northern Israel has a civil war with southern Israel and they split into into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, uh, Jeroboam in the north is going to set up an, another idolatrous worship center there or probably just refines what's already there and put a golden calf there. So, I mean, this just, it sets up for th- this evil that pre- that continues in Israel is the same evil we have everywhere in the world. We can't get rid of it. Only God can get rid of it. Only God's going to deal with it. So we have this emphasis. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And it's repeated again in 18.1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The writer really wants us to get that point. And who's the king? In Deuteronomy 30, verse 33, verse 5, and he, that is Yahweh, was king in Jeshurun. That was a, a positive nickname that God, it's sort of a term of endearment that God gave to Israel. Yahweh was king in Jeshurun, but not anymore because they've rejected him. That's what's happened. And kingship is not seen as, which is what happens when you get to First uh, Samuel 8, they go to Samuel and they say, we want to have a king like everybody else. But that's not the solution. And Samuel takes it personally and God says, no, they've rejected me and not you. That's the, been the problem all along. The solution isn't human kingship. The solution is divine kingship. That's, that's the ultimate, ultimate issue. And we saw that last time that kings and human politics are not the ultimate solution. You are going to solve some things through certain political actions, but that's not the ultimate solution unless there is a change in the thinking of the people. So you had kings who did what was right in their own eyes, like Solomon, Jehu, and Ahaz, who are absolutely horrible. Uh, Others were a little better, but they failed to eliminate all of the idolatrous worship places. And then you had three main kings who followed the the law. The law. That was David, Hezekiah, and and Jonah, Josiah. And what we see is that religion is what is destructive, not Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. Religion is where man does something that God's supposed to bless. Christianity is God does everything, and man accepts it through faith. Satan is the master counterfeiter. Every religion other than Christianity has is a counterfeit established by Satan. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, we read, Paul is writing this. He's talking about these false teachers and men who claim to be apostles and claim to be teachers. And he says, for such are false apostles. They're deceitful workers, transforming themselves. In other words, they're making a claim to be apostles of Christ. We have pastors in some churches today who claim that. And then Paul says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He's not some red-skinned creature with a pointed tail and horns. 
He was created the most beautiful of all the angels and the most intelligent of all the angels. And he, he appears as an angel of light and goodness. He's a counterfeit. So Paul concludes, therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So that's what's going to happen here as we develop this from Judges 17.1, the establishment of false religion through a Levitical priest whose identity will surprise you. And that's sort of the punchline at the end. Okay, we'll come back and develop this more next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to see the world as you have described it, defined it. Understand that there is truth and there is error. Understand that we live in a world that opposes absolute truth because they want permissiveness. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do, whatever is right in their eyes. And yet we as believers are called to be obedient to your word, not in an arrogant way, not in a self-righteous way, but in a way that just demonstrates that we are humbling ourselves under your authority. So, Father, help us to see this and apply it in our thinking and in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.